In order that all sentient beings may attend Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the paths of omniscience. O Manjushri, please. Um, May these rise in the clear mirror of intellect. Clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Try to do two things at once. Failed at both. Good evening. Welcome to the uh, first section of the presentation of the classifications of mind as given in our text, the Science and Philosophy in the Indian Buddhist Classics, Volume 2, The Mind. So tonight's reading has uh, two somewhat repetitive chapters, but uh, very much of material of interest, so worth very much worth going through both. First one is the introduction written by uh, uh, a wonderful introduction written by John Dunn, very capable scholar. So on page 25, and this is in the part one of the book called The Mind. And this little section of his introduction is called The Path of Knowledge. From the earliest days, Buddhist traditions have emphasized the importance of the mind. And the, uh, the focus was on discovering the source of suffering. What page are we on, Derek? Page 25. <laughs> so the... Uh, the focus uh, has been on discovering what's the source of suffering as the way to achieve liberation, not uh, by doing uh, physical exercises or asceticism or other uh, magical activities like that, but simply by understanding the uh, root of ignorance and the true nature of reality uh, are the causes for liberation from samsara, the sufferings of samsara. So in the second paragraph, after going through all sorts of, uh, uh, ascetic practices and, uh, intense meditative states of absorption, the author says, in the end, however, Siddhartha turned, turned away from this more physical approach and adopted a perspective that appears to have been increasingly influential in his time. The physical world and the body itself must be sustained, but the problem of suffering cannot be eliminated through purely physical manipulations. Instead, suffering arises from a fundamental distortion in how we experience the world such that we live in a state of perpetual ignorance. Avidya in Sanskrit, or confusion, moha. Thus, to relieve suffering, one must remove the fundamental confusion by counteracting 
it with wisdom, prajna, which sees things as they truly are. So the summary, the, the simplest summary of Buddhism is overcoming ignorance by wisdom. By, on the next page, interpreting suffering as a problem of ignorance, Siddhartha embarked on a spiritual path that in common with some other Indian traditions came to be known as a path of knowledge, Shnana Marga, Shnana being wisdom, and Sanskrit Marga being the Sanskrit for path. For any path to knowledge, including all Indian Buddhist traditions, the fundamental goal of philosophy and contemplative practice is to uproot the confusion that underlies all suffering. Buddhist accounts often focus on exactly what constitutes ignorance, the fundamental cognitive distortion that lies at the root of suffering, since identifying ignorance properly enables one to cultivate its antidote. This is the key formulation or the key strategy of uh, the Buddhist tradition in general, and in particular, this uh, more, um, you might say, scholarly tradition, or more elaborate tradition that goes about uh, really understanding the way the mind works in great detail, the way the, the uh, physical word, world works, the way the subjective world works and the way that the subjective world experiences the objective world and in what way the subjective experience of the objective world is inaccurate and produces suffering. And by understanding that root of ignorance, we are uh, thereby under, we are enabled to uh, overcome that wrong view, that ignorance. Different levels of philosophical analysis interpret ignorance differently. So we see that in the in the different schools of Buddhism, that ignorance is defined differently. Ignorance in the earlier schools is the belief in a self of persons, and uh, the later schools in the belief in the self of phenomena, uh, roughly speaking. And there are variations still to that. Um, and at the most basic level, ignorance concerns the cognitive distortions that induce the sense that one has a fixed and completely autonomous personal identity. Subsequent volumes in this series will examine not only that basic level, but also the more finely grained accounts found at higher levels of analysis, such as the radical anti-essentialism found in the Madhyamaka philosophy. For all these levels of analysis, the key point is that the defect that produces suffering and dissatisfaction is within the mind itself. And so all the theories from the earliest period onward uh, are formulated to engage in an extensive and exhaust and robust inquiry into the nature of the mind. In that endeavor, they explore the process of co cognition, the contours of affective states, the constituents of reliable knowledge, the uh, meditative methods for transformation, and so on. This volume compiled by a skilled team of Tibetan scholars, presents the Indian Buddhist account of the mind and its workings. And in this first part, our author, authors focus on the nature of the mind itself, along with key issues related to cognition. Before examining these, let's uh, clarify the sources and methods for this account. So 
I'll skim this. It's uh, of interest, but not uh, essential. In, in details, as noticed in Tupton Chinpa's introductory essay in the first volume of this series, the main source for the compilation comes from the Buddhist works written originally in Sanskrit, some now only available in Tibetan. The present volume on mine cites dozens of sources, including discourses, sutras, attributed to the Buddha, but three genres are especially essential sorry, central, the Abhidharma corpus or literature, the uh, Pramana, valid cognition, or epistemological literature and manuals for contemplative practice. Also key to the first volume, the Abhidharma cor uh, corpus emerges from the earliest period of Buddhist history, and these texts are especially concerned with giving a systematic account of the fundamental constituents of the mind. One of the most enduring Abhidharma contributions the account of there being mind and mental factors as separate aspects of mind, primary minds, the six primary minds, and then attendant uh, mental factors that arise with primary minds in combination. And that informs part two of this volume, mind and mental factors. But Abhidharma sources are often cited in other contexts as well especially the Treasury of Knowledge by Vasubandhu. Unlike the Abhidharma, the epistemological literature emerges later in Buddhist history and associated with the NA masters, Dignaga in the 5th century, 5th to 6th, and Dharmakirti in the 6th century, i.e. the 4th and 5th, uh, 4 500s of the Common Era. For analysis of perception, inferential reasoning, concept formation, and other cognitive processes, Dharmakirti's works in particular are a key source. Next paragraph, the great Buddhist authors of India also wrote treatises, shastras, that sometimes defy easy categorization, but many of these fit under the general rubric of contemplative manuals and that even when straying into abstruse philosophy, they remain centrally concerned with providing instructions theories or explanations for effective contemplative practice, i.e. for transformation of the mind through contemplation. Among the many such sources cited by our authors, one of the most frequent is, frequent is uh, Bodhicharavatara by Shantideva, 7th to 8th century, which is exemplary in the way it interweaves straightforward instruction for contemplative practice with also very abstruse and finely uh, reasoned philosophical analysis. Traditionally, all of these sources are organized according to the hierarchical schema of the four schools of Buddhist philosophy. The Vaibhashika, which is, uh, can be translated as the part particularists or particleists or atomists. The Sautrantikas, those who cleave to the sutras and the traditions that come from the sutras, the Yogacara, the practitioner-oriented folks, and the Madhyamakas, the uh, middle way viewers. The Madhyamaka school is traditionally considered the highest because its critiques of essentialism are said to yield the most accurate account of what truly exists. But the middle, sorry, the models of mind and cognition endorsed by the Madhyamaka are drawn almost 
entirely from the entire lower three lower schools and so the next course will be on the tenant systems of these four schools um, the third school yogacara is often considered a form of philosophical idealism such that the existence of matter is critiqued and interestingly our author here john dunn uses the term yogacara instead of chittamatra which is a more common the used term by Gilukpas and John Dunn has a little bit more uh, sort of wide, wider uh, sort of affiliation, I'd, I'd say personally, in that he uh, branches out beyond the Gilukpa school considerably. While the Yogacara school provides some key sources for the models of mind and cognition presented in this volume and in the sort of overall tradition of the study of mind in the in the Shadra context. It is the two lower schools, the Vaibhashika and the Sautrajika, that provide the analytical perspective for the vast majority of the content articulated here, i.e. in the Shadra uh, context. Um, so, and most prominently, the Sautrajika provides the foundation, the foundational view, which we uh, uh, sort of accept as the starting point for understanding and then debate. And we've seen this many times before, including in the last class. Setting aside the finer distinctions between the two lower schools, the most relevant, relevant aspect of their perspective is that they endorse a form of dualism, stark dualism, such that the world consists of irreducible physical stuff on the one hand, generally conceived as infinitesimally small particles of matter and irreducible mental stuff on the other hand, mind-body dualism, the various components of consciousness and cognition. Methodologically, our authors adopt a traditional pragmatic approach to this wide-ranging material since the higher levels of analysis provided by Mandimaka and Yogacara schools are often counterintuitive and since the basic models of mind, affect, and cognition can be adequately articulated without appealing to those higher levels of analysis, our authors primarily choose to present this material from the lower level of analysis assumed by the Vaibhashika and Sautrantika schools because they are uh, intuitive and experientially uh, sort of uh, obvious to the common person. Um, whereas the Yogacara and, and Madhyamaka are, as see, this author says, counterintuitive and involve a uh, sort of leap to some extent. Higher levels of analysis are occasionally invoked, but this basic level where mind and matter are kept distinct is the default perspective for most explanations, in part because it does not stray too far from our ordinary intuition still as will become apparent those ordinary intuitions are often called into question even at this lowest level of analysis and this is precisely why the more basic sorry this is precisely why that more basic level is pragmatically useful for explanatory purposes since a critique that strays too far from our ordinary intuition might prove challenging in an unnecessarily distracting way so we sort of keep to the mainstream of uh, human uh, experiential reality of uh, object and subject. Focus 
initially is on the nature of the mind. First part presents an account of mind drawn from Indian Buddhist sources and immediately raised some difficulties for readers accustomed in the notions of mind in Western philosophical, sorry, philosophy, psychology, and cognitive science. One key issue is that the term mind in Western science, sorry, context suggests a single entity that endures over time and has various capacities, dispositions, or features. In contrast, the Buddhist sources cited by our authors our authors rather maintain that mind is episodic <laughs> mind occurs in episodes um, and there's episodes are sorted into seasons and uh, there's many seasons and you would have to binge watch for a long time to see all those episodes of the mind such that a mind is a continuum of mental moments each moment causally emerging from the previous moment and acting as a cause for the subsequent moment. And this is, I, I love his, his way of uh, pointing this out and describing it as a key feature that mind is this, uh, what we call mind is a collection of minds in the Buddhist context, different types of minds. Um, each mind is thus a unique moment of consciousness or awareness. Now, it's sort of odd that he translates consciousness as jnana, um, where we would say vijnana, but uh, I don't know. We'll see how he uh, deals with that later on. Usually it's vijnana, is consciousness. And awareness, samvriti. Interestingly, the analysis of the nature of mind is this actually an analysis of what in Western context would be a moment of mind or a mental event, mind event, and that in a way that can be additionally confusing. Buddhist authors will often speak of plural minds of one, he doesn't say, but of one individual that pertain to this, oh, he does, to the same person at different points of time or in different contexts, such as the mind in a moment of visual consciousness or the mind in a moment of one-pointed concentration are considered to be different minds. We would say different moments of mind, we would, which assumes a sort of content continuity of the same mind. But in the Buddhist tradition, they try to continually remind us that each moment is uh, of a discrete nature and does not persist beyond a moment. And uh, so we have mind moments moments um, yeah mind moments or, or mind events uh, both of these minds could be in the same continuum such that in referring to someone named Jane one could speak of Jane's many minds <laughs> Jane has is of many minds we could say in the West we would say I am of many minds about that elocution that seems odd in Western. In our translation, we've tried to avoid using the plural minds as much as possible, but it's important to note that even this singular, the term mind refers to a single mental event, a discrete moment in mental continuum. Now, the nature of mind, our authors focus on the most widely cited account, namely that mind is and this is the standard definition of mind, and we'll go into this to some depth. Mind is clear and aware, and he gives the Tibetan, which is nice, uh, pronounced selwa, if you're interested. We ignore the G there. 
and it's pronounced S-E-L, and the B-A is W-A, <laughs> W, which is not really that important, of course, and aware, Rikpa. And this is different than the Rikpa in Dzogchen, although it's the same term. Here the term clear. So these two fa uh, facets, clear and aware. And you can say that the essence of mind is clear and its nature, or sorry, the nature of mind is clear and the function of mind is to be aware. And we'll see that uh, elaborated shortly. Here the term clear renders two distinct Sanskrit terms that evoke the phenomenal character of mind and also one of its essential properties in relation to the Sanskrit term prakasha, which is like you would say, it's a clear or, or um, reflective, like a mirror, is prakasha. Uh, the Tibetan translation is most accurately rendered as luminous in the sense that the mind illuminates or presents contents much as a lamp illuminates whatever is nearby. And the term illumination and lamps implies visual um, clarification, but uh, it applies to all the senses and the non-sense of the sixth mental consciousness as well. And that was a little bit of a play on words, the non-sense. The sixth consciousness is the home of nonsense as well as nonsense cognition. Okay, anyway. Um, unlike the physical lamp, however, the mind does not depend on proclivity to illuminate whatever is present in the moment of consciousness. A concept of something very far away can be just as clear as a concept of something close by or uh, a mental cognition of a sense cognition. It can have the same sense of clarity. All those different examples. Um, a second key feature is that even in exceptional cases where a moment of consciousness has no cognitive content, a mind or moment of consciousness still includes the phenomenal character presenting or illuminating even though there is no content to be illuminated contentless cognition just illumination without content which is an unusual case and it's a little bit odd that he mentions brings that up but he's trying to prove a point uh, which is this illuminating quality of mind on the next page, 30, the mind is also clear in that it is transparent. So, um, when uh, he's still on, on the first aspect of mind, which is clear. Mind is that which is clear and aware. Its nature is clear, and the clear has two aspects, luminous and transparent. Here the term clear points to a fundamental property of mind. Water, for example, is clear by is by nature clear, and that even when it is murky, the impurities that obscure it can be removed and its natural clarity or transparency will return. Likewise, the mind is clear in that no particular object that we can think of or experience that the mind experiences or effective states such as anger and so forth is essential to a moment of consciousness. The consciousness uh, comes along with those mental factors, but is not 
uh, colored. It's not um, uh, tainted by them in, 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 uh, in its fundamental nature. Now, you know, that sort of calls into question, well, how does, what is the impact of karma and where does that reside? And uh, that's an extremely important question, and we'll get into that as we go along. Likewise, the mind is, uh, let's see, this point is especially crucial for Buddhist approaches to personal transformation and behavior change, since it means that the dysfunctional habits that produce suffering and dissatisfaction can be transformed precisely because they're not essential to the mind itself. And we see in the Mahayana tradition, in the Buddha nature tradition, this idea that defilements are um, not of the true nature of mind. They are, what is the term? Defilements are... Um, Adventitious? Thank you. Thank you. Adventitious. What a great word. I have a question. If, yes, please. Okay. I was just in the sentence. Um, sorry, my book is different than yours. So in the sentence where it says, no particular object is essential to a moment of consciousness. I'm getting a little confused about what, when he's talking about mind, nature of mind versus a moment of consciousness, because I thought a, a moment of consciousness is essentially where a uh, so-called object, the three elements come together of an object and a faculty and a consciousness. And in that case, isn't a consciousness in that sense somewhat dependent on there having been an object? Yeah, Th this is a, an odd thing that he's entered in here. I'm not sure why. I don't quite understand why he has brought that in, in as... Um, the second key feature is that even in exceptional cases where a moment of consciousness has no cognitive content, a mind or moment of consciousness still includes the phenomenal lot, phenomenal character presenting, illuminating, even though there's no content. I don't know. I'm equally confused. I mean, I get the sense that he's sort of skating between the nature of mind quality and the, you know, he's not directly maybe, but sort of indirectly touching on that? Or, and obviously he's in the rest of this paragraph after the line I read, he, he's talking about the, that notion of adventitious, meaning the, you know, not staining the fundamental nature, but it just seems like there's a mixing up between a moment of consciousness and the nature of mind. That they're not, I don't feel like it's, doesn't seem like it's being consistently used, at least in the way that I conceive it. Well, he and uh, the other authors will touch on the relationship between mind and consciousness soon. But um, anyway, it, yeah, it's a little odd an example. And I'm, I was one. I thought maybe he was like referring to the self-aware quality of mind, but I don't know. Let's see sure. how it pans out. Yeah. Thanks. Um. Okay, so we were at the sentence, uh, let's see, since it means that the dysfunctional habits that produce suffering and dissatisfaction can be transformed precisely because they're not essential to the mind itself, 
to the nature of the mind. This means in particular that ignorance, the fundamental cognitive distortion that underlies suffering, is not an essential property of the mind, and is, it is therefore possible to remove that distortion without putting an end to consciousness itself. While the mind is clear, perhaps luminously clear, to capture the two senses encompassed by the term, um, by the term clear, illuminating and transparent, it is also aware. In general, this means that a mind or moment of consciousness has an epistemic character. That is, the mind does not simply illuminate, it also does so in an informative way. It knows its object. More specifically, at the level of analysis deployed by our authors, a mind or moment of consciousness is about its object, and it presents that object in a way that is relevant to action that engages that object. When he says the word action, he's talking about mental action, such as uh, cognition of. Our authors point out that mind, by virtue of being aware, is distinct from matter, which lacks this characteristic. Two points are crucial here. First, while mind is distinct from matter, it nevertheless depends on a material basis for it to function also a little bit controversial that he says this. In other words, the mind is necessarily embodied and the constraints posed by a particular embodiment, such as the capacity of one's sensory organs, must be taken into account when examining cognitive processes and other aspects of the mind. Second, while the mind is intrinsically aware by virtue of presenting objects as relevant to embodied action, it is not necessarily the case that a moment of awareness, that is, any given mind event, provides reliable information about its object. It can have a distorted uh, view of its object. It's for this reason, in part, that Buddhist theorists are so concerned to distinguish the many varieties of awareness. So they, they uh, focus um, with great detail and at great length on the different types of cognitive um, engagement that our minds can uh, experience in order to um, come up with the sort of definitive cognitive experience which is said uh, to be required for understanding the nature of ignorance and thereby producing liberation from that ignorance. Understanding the nature of uh, ignorance in a, a surface, so-called surface level or also intellectual way does not change the characteristic of our being um, imprisoned by that ignorance. The next section of the book, and therefore of this introduction of this part of the book is about sensory and mental consciousness and there has been two varieties of cognition. Much of part one is devoted to examining different ways of categorizing mind. A particular note here is the distinction between sense and mental consciousnesses, which we sort of take for granted, but this is looked into with uh, some great detail. 
Uh, let's see. In this context, the use of the term mind in the plural does not apply just to the continuum of mind events. We can also properly say that a sentient being in any given moment may have multiple minds. This points to an important feature of the Buddhist accounts presented by our authors, namely that it adopts what could be called a modularity theory. So, uh, sorry, thesis. So earlier he said episodic events. It's an interesting way of describing the sort of point instant quality of the stream of mental moments. And now he has comes up with another uh, term for, for describing another facet of the cognitive world, that of modularity. And let's see how he rolls this one out. Um, it, that Buddhist account adopts what could be called a modularity thesis similar to some contemporary accounts in cognitive science. Modularity itself is a complex topic, and contemporary notions encompass a wide variety of competing approaches in simple terms. It means that distinct cognitive processes are executed by distinct mental modules that are encapsulated and that they function independently of other modules. Earlier in the last, at the end of the last class and in the review session um, and in other authors and in other situations, this, this uh, characteristic that he's calling modularity is also described, can, uh, has been described as the sort of channel-like quality of mind where we have these six types of consciousness and each one of them is like a channel where you turn the channel and you're in, a, in one world view and then you turn the channel again to an, another sense uh, situation and you're in another world so there's the worlds the, the, the six sense avenue worlds you know we're in the auditory world or we're in the visual world or the tactile world and those are distinct worlds that happen moment by moment in a very fast succession to the extent that so so much so that we don't usually notice that they're separate. We feel like we're seeing and hearing simultaneously, but actually, uh, but at least in the Buddhist tradition, this is described as not accurate and that the more accurate description is that each moment is a separate channel or what he's calling modular system of there being a sense space, a sense object, and a sense, uh, the, sorry, a sense base that uh, is the physical support of a sense faculty, a sense object, a sense consciousness, and uh, that arises from the meeting of those three base uh, object and faculty. Let's see. Um, strong forms of modularity often connect these functions to specific brain regions. And they may posit modularity even at complex levels of processing the visual cortex, the auditory cortex, uh, so forth. Um, or the auditory parts of the brain. Um, weaker forms of modularity assert that modules operate 
at more basic levels of processing and such theories may not maintain a strong correspondence between a module and any localized brain region be helpful if he had given examples but um, we, we we think of the modularity of like the visual system as the most uh, relevant example where you have a separate visual um, you have a separate part of the brain that's the visual cortex and that connects to the eyes and somehow that information is then relayed to the cerebral cortex but uh, there's many other modular systems like that that are not as discrete and easily identified one of the most uh, overriding ones is the system of wakefulness that the reticular activating system controls in the bottom of the brain stem that sort of uh, controls whether you're awake or asleep, <laughs> sort of basic mental function. Um, from the perspective of this highly simplified account of modularity, the Hindu Buddhist theorists assert a weak form of modularity, especially in regard to the five forms of sense consciousness. Not, not sure quite how useful his idea of modularity is beyond the six main ones. <laughs> In brief, an instance of sense consciousness emerges initially when the physical sense faculty contacts the object and there becomes its dominant condition. So uh, sense versus mental consciousness brings up this scheme of the four causal conditions that uh, we looked at last class and that I focused on in the review section. Uh, the, re the review class at the beginning of this course. So the dominant condition um, is the uh, object of a sense consciousness. I'm sorry, the dominant condition is the physical sense faculty that connects with the object. So the dominant condition of an eye sense co cognition is the eye sense faculty. With additional conditions in place, the mental processes required to produce, for example, the first moment of a visual consciousness can occur simultaneously with the process that produces the first moment of any other sense consciousness, such as an auditory or olfactory one. In this way, multiple sense minds can and usually do arise simultaneously and this suggests that sense consciousness exhibits sense consciousness exhibits at least a weak form of modularity for at the low level of processing required to produce the first moment of sense consciousness as the five kinds of sense consciousness operate independently of each other which is a somewhat confusing presentation of the uh, fact that our sense consciousnesses are receptive all the time and so they are um, active but only one of them is uh, experienced by uh, the attention by our moment our, what what we'll see later called the immediate mind which is uh, the mind that arises from the sixth consciousness our authors point out that the low level of processing that produces the initial moment of sense consciousness is not sufficient to induce an action that engages with a sensory object. Again, uh, a, um, a sort of 
not very helpful or vague way of describing the fact that when our sense consciousnesses encounter their object, they don't they don't come to our uh, attention unless they encounter that object in a repeated fashion. And those of us that have uh, been present for some other courses will have seen this described in detail in certain Abhidharma systems where they give the actual number of um, uh, mind moments of sensory consciousness required to have it register, to have that sense consciousness register in our overall consciousness. So it's sort of like you're uh, maybe uh, watching TV and your visual consciousness is engaged and your auditory consciousness is engaged and at the same time there's an ant that starts crawling up your leg and it takes a little while for you to notice the ant because ants are very small and the sensation is very subtle but when it repeats over and over again suddenly it impinges on your consciousness which was previously consumed by the visual and auditory experience and then you have that tactile cognition come to your consciousness whereas before it was subconscious so maybe that's a more helpful way of describing this is that a lot of sensory uh, experience happens on a subconscious level and they've uh, uh, psychiatrists what did we say how about like specialists in the west have demonstrated this through hypnosis that uh, people who, under hypnosis have been able to recount incredible level of detail of sensory experience in their day-to-day -day world that they were not cognizant of such as the number of steps it takes to get to the subway where you live or maybe where you visited once and uh, the color of objects that you didn't pay any attention to and so on and so forth they're in your subconscious but they didn't come to your consciousness so one of the key uh, challenges of a description of sensory and mental consciousness is how does sense consciousness come uh, arise out of the uh, sort of background level of constant sense awareness that occurs with our senses when they're operating uh, properly they're constantly picking up information but we're only aware of a fraction of all of that cognitive information so how, do, how does suddenly one type of cognitive stream of information come to our uh, conscious focus anyway to facilitate action toward a sensory object, it must be conceptualized or categorized. And this can only occur when the data from sense consciousness moves into mental consciousness. So how does that happen? How does it emerge out of the morass? At that point, on the basis of additional conditions such as desires and goals, i.e., like what is our agenda in a, in a sort of cognitive way? You know, if we're, if we're trying to accomplish a task and are focused on that, then all our faculties are geared towards that and alternative sensory experience takes longer to penetrate into our consciousness. 
At that point, on the basis of additional conditions such as desires and goals, a concept that facilitates goal-oriented action can occur. Now, however, the modularity related to sense consciousness no longer applies because only one mental consciousness can occur at any given time. So whereas there's simultaneity of the sense consciousnesses, there's only a, um, a singularity that occurs in the mental or sixth consciousness. Now, however, the modularity related to sense consciousness no longer applies. I'm sorry, I read that. When conceiving sense objects, mental consciousness depends, sorry, mental consciousness depends on the lower level processing provided by sense consciousness as well as other mental processes such as memory that remembers like what am I, what am I seeing for, uh, based on past experience. One important aspect of this articulation of six types of consciousness, i.e. mental consciousness and the five forms of sense consciousness, is that it reflects the commitment to developing models of cognition that do not require an autonomous control agent, the self, Atman, or perceiver. What is the Sanskrit? Bokhtri? as the agent of a cognitive act. That's an interesting term. Drawing on the work of Denong and Dharmakirti, our authors point out that the sense of subjectivity in any moment of consciousness is simply a momentary phenomenal form or image that emerges simultaneously with the image or representation of the object. So the sense of self emerges based on the subject-object uh, based on the perception of an object, the uh, we have like our ignorance, the uh, function of our ignorance is to imagine that there must be a cognitive subject independent of the uh, many various cognitive functions of consciousness and so forth, that we imagine there must be an agent. Uh, this image of subjectivity thus has no causal role or agency in that moment of visual perception. We have this illusion that we're deciding to look or think or say or hear, and that experience is an illusion. Um, Derek? Yes, ma'am. Is this saying that the sense consciousnesses are happening at the same time, but the mental consciousness can only take one in at a time? That's right, that our sense consciousness are constantly registering data, but only either one of those sense consciousnesses impinges into mental consciousness, or we experience a mental consciousness of a mental object. So mental consciousness can have either a mental object, such as a memory or a plan, or a, a sort of a comment, a thought about something, or mental consciousness can perceive the sense consciousness that it that has arisen to its attention okay. by virtue of a level of importance or repetitive uh, registering. Um, Thanks. Thank you. This image of subjectivity thus has no causal role or agency in that moment of visual perception, instead reflects the basic structural feature, the subject-object relation that characterizes any moment of consciousness bearing in on an object. 
Uh, so that leads us to this notion of what's how reliable is our cognition? If our cognition is continually moment to moment deceived in this way of thinking that there's an agent, then, you know, how can we trust that consciousness? How can we come to a definitive, uh, uh, reliable cognition of what's going on? So epistemic, epistemic, something like that, reliability, and the suspicion of concepts. There's this overriding suspicion in the Indian uh, philosophical framework of conceptual mind as opposed to direct experience, which makes sense. Which is another way of using the word sense. The emphasis on building cognitive models that set aside any notion of an autonomous and changing self acting as the agent of cognition returns us to the basic problem of suffering and dissatisfaction, not being able to get what you want, as noted above. Buddhist theorists in India maintain the fundamental problem of suffering is caused by ignorance and fundamental cognitive distortion, whose most basic manifestation is precisely the sense of an autonomous and changing self as the agent of experience. He says actions, the perceiver of perceptions, the controller of the mind-body system, and so on. For these theorists, the distortions can only be solved by cultivating a form of wisdom that counteracts this ignorance. The basic theory here is that two cognitive states can stand in opposition to one another such that one necessarily inhibits the other from arising, i.e. if you can experience wisdom that sees the true nature of selflessness, that inhibits the automatic sense of uh, conceptual sense of self. An additional claim is that when a non-deceptive cognition, i.e. one that is epistemically, epistemically reliable, comes into conflict with an unreliable one, the re reliable cognitive state of sufficiently robust will always inhibit the unreliable one. Which is a really interesting assumption that should not necessarily be accepted on face value that we have to explore. Um, uh, and um, parts of that are this uh, parenthetical statement of it being sufficiently robust. Moreover, you know, so he's saying that um, if you have a definitive understanding of a situation, it will override the uh, um, the unfounded suspicions you have of a situation, which, I don't know, we often like <laughs> remain unconvinced even though we're presented by certain factual situations or evidence. Moreover, the dispositions that cause the unreliable or distorted cognition to arise can eventually be eliminated by using contemplative techniques to immerse oneself in the experience of the reliable cognition. So we can sort of train our mind to dis, dis, uh, dismiss unreliable information, i.e. the sense of self, and cleave to the understanding that we've developed through inferential reasoning of the lack of a control agent. 
this basic model discussed at length in part six, which is the contemplative section of the book, the book, the mind, the sex section on mind training, which all of us are experts in, applies to all cases where one seeks to eliminate cognitive distortions, and it applies especially to the cultivation of wisdom as a means to uproot ignorance. Hopefully you're skeptical, <laughs> which sort of begs the question of why do, why do enlightened Asians remain uh, sexually chauvinistic and things like that but anyway <laughs> I, I was just wondering because this, this sort of seems like it's a, a kind of a replacement model that one set of habits is replacing the other and so you know and as opposed to like the notion that ultimately the you know path of, you know when we hit the what path of seeing and there's some kind of insight that's actually sustains is that just means that the the arm wrestling between the enlightened, you know, the, the one view versus the other has won, you know, definitively, because they, they're very much making it sound like it's sort of a, one is just shoving the other out of the way, you know, one. Yeah, well, it's, it's sort of a, another way of uh, discussing uh, gradual versus sudden path sort of mm -hmm. thing. And uh, the general view and the tradition from which this literature or system arises is that the path is gradual up to a point and then it's complete right sudden, right up to the path of seeing and at which point then the delusory cognitions no longer arise but up to that point we train our mind in a very mechanistic way to not cleave to incorrect cognitions uh, all the time while trying to understand trying to experience the true nature of reality as empty in a direct non in, uh, in a direct non -cog uh, conceptual moment of consciousness which then produces the uh, unchanging situation but it's it's a little bit uh, clunky the way he is mm -hmm. presenting it one other thing related to what you just said about direct non-conceptual reminded one other question i had is i met he mentioned somewhere about the lower level sensory processes and i wondered whether that is actually is is that a common view that that sensory processes are lower level than mental processes no i i think he was saying that there's it was i think it was a little unclear what he was referring to but i thought he was saying that there's these five major modules of the five sense the main five senses and the sixth then being the the mental consciousness but that there's also other sense modules like the sense of balance the sense of air pressure the sense of you know various things other types of senses that we have that have uh, smaller modules, but I, don't I know. hear that. But what I the line that I was seeing this in is when conceiving sense objects, mental consciousness depends on the lower level processing provided by sense consciousness, as well as other mental processes such as memory. So that made it sound like it was saying that that those sense consciousnesses that do feed. Well, by comparison, sense consciousnesses are considered to be lower than the mental. Is that generally viewed, you know, even though we also have that view that there's something about sense perception that is actually direct and 
Who's we? Well, the, there is that view. Some <laughs> some have that understanding. It was taught to us, right? You know, well, we'll be we'll be uh, challenging that view in this course. Right. So you and said we're, you we're don't accept that view. Uh, I'm not saying I. Okay. We'll, we'll we'll see what the see what the book says. We'll ask the book. Book. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Yeah, we'll come. We we're about to get to uh, mistaken consciousness versus invalid consciousness, that distinction, and uh, we'll see a description of exactly the the crux of the biscuit, if I can get there. So let's see, where the hell am I? Sleepy Hollow Shrine. No. Um, given the central role played by epistemic reliability or non-deceptivity in practices designed to transform a practitioner, it's no surprise that this issue surfaces repeatedly in Buddhist analysis of cognitive processes. So let's see, now he, he sort of generalizes. Skipping a few sentences, he says, one intriguing distinction that emerges in these taxonomic analyses um, is the notion that epistemic reliability can still apply to cognitions that are mistaken. Well-formed inferences, for example, are always epistemically reliable, but since they are necessar necessarily conceptual, they're also mistaken. So all conceptual consciousnesses are mistaken. Uh, here, epistemic reliability is rooted in the way that a cognition facilitates effective action in relation to an object. And in part, this means that a cognition need only be accurate in order, in order to, uh, sorry, in part, this means that a cognition need only be accurate in regard to the causal capacities of the object relevant to one's goal-oriented action. This is a little convoluted. So he's leading up to inferential reasoning or understanding. Inferring from billowing smoke, there's a fire. My conceptual cognition of fire can enable me to take effective action. Uh, running away from the fire or seeking warmth by it if you're cold. Um, skipping to the next paragraph, the notion that conceptual cognitions are necessarily mistaken even when they're epistemically reliable reflects an overall suspicion of conceptuality that characterizes Indian Buddhism from its earliest days. But the technical account in part one draws especially on Dharmakirti and other Buddhist epistemologists for these Conceptual cognitions are always mistaken in two ways. So uh, here we have part of the support for what Cynthia just mentioned, where we, we tend to value uh, sense perception over conceptual consciousness. Um, first, Wait, is, so, 
mistaken in two ways. So first, we're going to see what you just suggested, is that sense cognitions are more reliable than conceptual cognitions. And in that way, they're not lower. You had asked about the lower. It seemed um, like before they were privileging the conceptual. Now it's the reverse. It right? did, didn't it? Yeah. Okay. So that, but these two mistaken ways of uh, experience are very important. First, the object that appears phenomenally in my awareness, known as a conceptual image of the actual object. So here we're skipping into this framework of how conception, how um, perception works, where we have an outer object like an apple, and then we have the uh, representation of the apple. Uh, in the case of uh, looking at the apple, we have the representation of the apple in our visual uh, sense faculty. And then we have the uh, sense consciousness that looks at the image in the faculty. And then we have the mental consciousness that says apple. So he's saying conceptual cognitions are mistaken in two ways. First, the object that appears phenomenally in my awareness, known as the conceptual image of the object, is taken to be identical to the functioning thing that I seek to act upon as the engaged object. So in this case, we have the uh, concept, conceptual image of an apple, appears based on the, phys the visual sense consciousness of an apple. We have the mental cognition of a general idea of appleness. And we automatically assume that appleness applies to the object that our visual field is experiencing. <clears throat> First, the object that appears phenomenally in my awareness, known as the conceptual image. So this is a conceptual cognition, and it has uh, a, a it's the object of a conceptual cognition is an image, a generally characterized phenomena, an image, an idea, a generalization of the object. And it's taken to be identical to the phenomenal, sorry, the functional thing that I seek to act upon as the engaged object, or sometimes called the object of engagement. And that's the so-called outer object, or the object that exists from its own side. In other words, the phenomenally present fire in my conceptual cognition does not have the causal properties of an actual fire. The thought of fire cannot burn wood or heat a stove or make you feel warm. It might, might if you think of fire a lot, it might actually impact your internal temperature, but that's another issue. Um, yet our cognitive system creates a fusion of this phenomenal appearance with the engaged object to which the conceptual image of fire refers. So we say we live in a conceptual world where we merge the conceptual idea of phenomena, of every phenomena that our mental consciousness encounters, other than the bare data provided by sense consciousness. Uh, when that gets then understood by the mental consciousness, 
to be what it is, whatever it is, we immediately experience the conceptual image that we have for that outer phenomena. And we think that the two are identical. So conceptual cognition is mistaken in that way. It can be effective because we know the properties of fire, let's say, and so we know how to how to work with fire. So it's effective, but it's 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 cognitively mistaken because we think that the general idea of fire is what is actually in front of us in the fire pit. And I think it takes a while to really understand the impact of this fusion because if you're anything like me, you're probably saying, well, okay, I have a general idea of fire, and that is a fire, so why is it a problem that I'm fusing them? Right? So we'll come to that. Uh, conceptual cognitions are also mistaken, secondly, in another way. They take the, the uh, categories presented in conceptualizations as truly real. Buddhist epistemologists say the, those categories are actually constructed through the process of concept formation. So the idea of itself, sorry, the idea of fire itself that we fused with the outer experience of fire is uh, we take to be a real phenomena. We think there's such a thing as fire. And if you're anything like me, you're thinking, well, yeah, I mean, I have the idea of fire, but yeah, there's real fire. And the, the point is, is that we, we're not quite aware initially of the sort of ontological uh, status of the idea of that, the sort of ontological existence that we have imbued the idea of fire with when we think about fire or any phenomena in our world. We think that there are these things and that they're called, for example, fire and that there's examples of them. So, um, so yes, that yes, sir. changes the way we experience the fire. So when you get out of that, your your experience of the world would change. If if you can completely um, overcome the automatic uh, process that goes on in a conceptual mind of fusing the two and believing that the general idea of fire has an ontological existence, if we can overcome that, and that's not easily done, right? Right, but then if you are able to do that and, and realize that the idea of fire is completely uh, just uh, a skillful means to communicate and function and has no real objective reality, then it does indeed change the way that we experience fire and more importantly, the way that we experience the sense of a self which is what all of this is leading towards or focused on ultimately. For example, the conceptualization of fire when taken as referring to a real causally efficient thing presents that thing as bearing the same fundamental properties, some essence that constitutes a thing as fire, as all other things that can be categorized as fire, 
So we think there's this thing, fire, that appears in many different places, and that they're all the same. This projection of our categories into the world, however, is false for these theorists, since they maintain that all instances of things that we call fire are entirely unique. Instead, we construct concepts and categories through a process of exclusion. In Sanskrit, this term, apoha, where we conceptually come up with the idea of something by excluding everything that it's not, or that is not it. Whereby the cognitive system forms categories primarily by excluding what is incapable of or irrelevant to the desired causal outcome or conceptual frame that we're trying to formulate. So well, this, this concept <laughs> of concepts and this concept of uh, conceptualization and perception is uh, sort of huge. And we'll go through it a number of times in more and more depth and detail and, and sort of implication as we go through this course in this book. This brief excursus, or something like that, excursus, into the questions of reliability, error, and conceptualization demonstrates the finely grand, grand and insightful analysis typical of the material found throughout the volume. More could be said about the taxonomies presented, but it's perhaps already evident from the approach to conceptualization discussed above. Many of these materials point to a key issue, the primary of direct perception, or what might be called a kind of empirical stance. In, uh, in his first essay in the volume of the series, Tuptajimpa, um, so he was the one that wrote the introductions in volume one, speaks eloquently about the notion of what is science and the way that we might understand that term. Readers are encouraged to consult that. Um, and the way that we might answer the question is the science. I skipped some words there. However, deferring to his earlier, his lengthier discussion, I'll just examine two issues. One way to understand what we mean by science concerns the scientific method and the various concomitants it entails in terms of the process of implementing research. And an idealized and simplified account of science would involve these four steps, formulating a theory, generating a hypothesis about the theory, testing hypotheses through experimentation of uh, the ramifications of those hypotheses or the aspects of them, and then revising or confirming the theory based on the results of the experiments. And um, skipping to the next one, this volume focuses especially on Indian Buddhist sources written in Sanskrit. Sorry, sorry we don't need to go through this. Um, Okay, so more and more about science. So let's skip all that and then let's go back to, or forward rather, to page 39, which is a page that has no number on it, but it's it's the first page in the, um, it's the first section, first chapter of the book. It's called, again, The Nature of Mind. In the first volume of the series, presented objects of knowledge in general, physical entities in particular, including the process of rising and dissolution of the universe and living beings, that is, the objective side. Now we'll present the mind, the subjective side. In general, mind or consciousness refers to inner experience, feelings, 
emotional experiences, and so forth. It includes sense consciousnesses, and it also includes cognition. So I'm going to start skimming through this. Um, whatever position one holds that the mind is material or immaterial in general, what we call consciousness is known to exist based on experience, so it does not necessarily need to be proved through reasoning. Uh, nevertheless, there are many types of subtle mental states that must be proved through reasoning. So the general notion or experience or, or facticity of consciousness is sort of a given because we all experience it. And we don't need to prove that, but it is necessary to prove the possibility of refined states of consciousness, such as experienced in intense absorptions or higher stages of the path. Uh, the difference between consciousness and physical things is uh, physical things are obstructive and um, or and uh, mind is clear, non-obstructive and aware has that activity of being aware. Matter is merely obstructive, takes up space. Um, let's skip to the next page. The nature of the mind is difficult to take hold of. It's intangible, weightless, like a firebrand spinning around, which is a famous image that if you have a, a a burning ember on the end of a rope and you spin it around it looks like it's a circle of fire as opposed whereas we all know it's just one bit of fire that's spinning very quickly so there's this illusory quality of um, in this case the mind is uh, having seeming like it has the quality of continually persisting through time in many different ways instead of there being many different minds. Skipping to the next paragraph, in general, the mind is the main factor involved in accomplishing the goals that we living beings desire. Yet, unlike physical things, it's difficult to identify. Yet if we train our minds in reliance on mindfulness, meta-awareness, shesham, samprajanya, uh, heedfulness, and so on. And so he lists the three main factors of shamatha in the, the uh, Buddhist tradition, mindfulness, meta-awareness or awareness, and heedfulness. We will attain both temporary and final happiness. Therefore, in the Buddhist tradition, the system of analyzing the mind in great detail flourished from the earliest times. Understanding how the mind works and what the nature of the mind is essential to the meditative cultivation of training the mind. Um, and then it gives a number of examples in Buddhist literature of the importance of mind and the primacy of attaining the mind, starting with the Buddha's statement, famous statement in the text called the Dhammapada, or verses of Dharma, do not commit any evil, practice supreme virtue, thoroughly tame your own mind. This is the teaching of all of the Buddha. And here's some more examples of that. On the next page, 41, Generally, in the context of Buddhist texts, so this is the paragraph after the quotes, uh, Cynthia, the terms cognition, which is the translation of the Sanskrit word bud, bud, buddhi, sorry, buddhi, uh, consciousness, the translation of jnana or vijnana, and awareness, the translation of samvritti, are all treated as coextensive or synonymous. 
So going back to what we experienced and uh, learned last semester about like uh, phenomena and object and cognitive object as all being synonymous. Similarly, we have a, a system of synony synonymous of, uh, term terms in this world of the subjective mind. And the main ones are that cognition, consciousness, and awareness are all synonymous. In other words, they don't, they don't refer to a different uh, entity, ontological entity, but they refer to different aspects of that one entity. The nature of cognition is stated to be awareness, and the nature of consciousness is said to be clear, or luminous, and aware. So they have slightly different uh, definitions because they highlight slightly different f uh, aspects of the same phenomena. <clears throat> Clear here expresses the essential nature of consciousness and awareness is aware expresses its function. So we have nature and function. Clear indicates one, that consciousness is beyond the nature of matter, which is uh, characterized as tangible and obstructive. And so mind is clear in nature. That, too, that just as reflections appear in a mirror, any internal or external object whatsoever that uh, can appear in consciousness. So consciousness is luminous and that it illuminates objects. And three, that the essential nature of consciousness is not contaminated by the stain of mental affliction, such as attachment. So its nature is clear or luminous, remains clear or luminous. The several meanings of the word clear are stated in the text that consciousness is devoid of the property of strictivity is explicitly stated in the sutras. And I'll skip the examples and go to the next paragraph. As noted above, consciousness is posited to be luminously clear and that any internal or external object whatsoever can appear in it. This is explained just as sunlight illuminates forms, any internal external phenomena can be illuminated by that is appear to consciousness. Um, skip me to the next paragraph. Many Hinayana, Mahayana, Hinayana scriptures teach that afflictions present within mind are adventitious and that the nature of the mind is luminous clarity. And he gives numerous examples of that through the remainder of this page. So skipping to page 43, <clears throat> he continues to give more examples of this quality of uh, adventitiously stained and not actually stained. Um, so uh, the last paragraph of on 43, which comes a bit after the quote by Dharmakirti, about the nature of mind is luminous clarity, the stains are adventitious. The next full paragraph says, also according to one interpretation in law and the nature of the mind is luminous clarity points to the fact that just as reflections appear in the mirror, the quality of consciousness is that internal external objects can appear to it. So continuing to skip all these quotes, let's go to the next page in the first full paragraph, uh, sorry, the top, of the next page. The mind, um, which comes first, Cynthia comes after the quote from the exposition of valid cognition, says the mind, the subjective, is luminous because it is by nature 
itself luminous clarity. Something else, such as an namely an object such as a visible form becomes the appearing object of that consciousness by means of something like the transference of its image <clears throat> that is visible form and so on into that luminously clear consciousness so consciousness acts as a passive receptacle for the appearance of the objects that come in front of it just like a mirror and objects that it experiences through the senses or through the mental consciousness, cast their aspect into the consciousness. Therefore, it is said that forms and so on clearly appear to that consciousness, because <clears throat> this, the implication here is that the, the objects in casting their aspect into the consciousness, their aspect is a faithful replica of the objects, and it's not distorted in that process um, and then they appear in consciousness consciousness when it fun when it's functionally functioning correctly uh, produces no uh, distortion to objects um, but it does sometimes function in a distorted manner incorrectly and thereby distorting the outside objects seeing things incorrectly um, let's see in, in, the, in that case, consciousness has both the quality of illuminating, the sense of being illuminating itself, so it illuminates itself, and the quality of illuminating its object in the sense that the image of the object appears in it. In some contexts, when luminously clear and aware are discussed, the mind may be additionally called empty in the sense of being naturally empty of obscurity, obstructivity rather, sorry unlike matter which is the very nature of obstructivity for these texts identify the nature of consciousness therefore as having three qualities emptiness luminous clarity and awareness <clears throat> so mind's empty or clear quality is such that it faithfully uh, sort of uh, absorbs the impression of what comes in front of it it doesn't uh, color it in any way. Second quality of consciousness mentioned above is awareness, is the function of consciousness, and uh, the quote, the first quote there from the exposition of valid cognition by Dharma Kirti is that consciousness has the attribute of apprehending its object. This is called awareness. It apprehends it in the way that it exists, and by virtue of being existent, the nature of the object to produce consciousness and if you remember one of the two possible functions of an object uh, sorry of a thing is to produce a cognition of that thing consciousness apprehends its objects its object or operates by way of cognizing its object which must indicate that the foremost unique attribute of consciousness is to apprehend its object or to cognize it um, Shantarakshita, uh, 8th century, speaks about the essential nature of consciousness in terms of having the quality of cognizing its own nature, self-awareness, which is the opposite of the nature of matter or something having a material form. Matter does not cognize itself. Mind cognizes itself. Uh, 
Uh, let's see, I'm going to skip those quotes and go to on page 45. After the quote, it says, As for the meaning of these passages, Kamala Sheila's text explains the concise meaning is as follows. The functioning of reflexive, i.e. self-awareness, is the very opposite of the nature of material things. Um, that is, awareness does not depend on any other illuminator in order to occur. And when, with that function in place, one thus engages its inactivities of cognition. Uh, skipping this next paragraph, let's see. On the bottom of the page, if in general matter and consciousness are fundamentally different with respect to their essential nature, in such terms as whether they are obstructive, exist by nature as clear and cognizing and are in the nature of mere experience, then the question arises, which of these two must be considered fundamental in reality? Also, what is the nature of the relationship between matter and consciousness? Um, and he, he goes into a little discussion of uh, materiality, the view of materialism, and, um, and the, the causality of the two of them, which I'm going to skip as not being essential so that we can... Oh, we're right near the end. Okay, so let's go through through this. Yeah, this is good. We're right near the end. Uh, let's see. So, the proponents of the Charvakas on the top of 46. Also, what is the nature of the relationship between matter and consciousness? Now, the proponents of the Char Charvaka, ancient Indian philosophical school, and the Charvakas are the materialists, the stark materialists don't accept any afterlife experience and uh, nor do they accept i think mind as being different from body i believe they posit physical phenomena to be fundamental and inner mental phenomena to be mere attributes or we would say like emergent qualities of physical phenomena like the shadow of a physical object like the light of an oil lamp or the potency of beer <laughs> However, the general position of classical Buddhist thinkers is that material phenomena and consciousness are equally fundamental. They maintain that just as physical phenomena can be reduced to ultimately some kind of substance or stuff of consciousness, likewise, mental phenomena cannot be reduced ultimately to some kind of material substance, such as subtle elements. Furthermore, anything, although anything that is not consciousness, such as something physical, cannot be the substantial cause of consciousness, both matter and consciousness are mutually dependent on each other. Hence, one must definitively accept that the two have a cooperative causal relationship. It's clear, for example, that the sense consciousnesses cannot arise without their causal basis, which are the physical sense organs. So this is a key uh, aspect of the uh, reality of mind and matter is the causal relationship between the two. Um, also, most types of mental consciousness having been drawn forth by a sense consciousness are indirectly dependent on the physical sense faculties. Likewise, according to the Buddhist philosophical views, many specific worldly environments have a karmic relationship with the beings living in them. This is a sort of uh, indirect way of describing the situation that all of the beings who appear in the desire realm, 
that we appear in have the karmic uh, propensity to experience their phenomenal environment in the same way. So we all see trees and greenery and so forth in the same way. Um, let's see. Likewise, according to Buddhist philosophical views, many specific worldly environments, I said that in particular, the text of the highest yoga tantra system present the essential nature of the inner wind in the mind to be that of indivisibility. That even in the case of a subtle mental consciousness, it is understood to be inseparable from its medium that it rides upon, which is wind. So the causal relationship between matter and mind. Mind rides upon the wind. <laughs> mixing mind with breath. Therefore, one must accept that form and consciousness are always inseparable. Nevertheless, it's not necessarily the case that in as much as there is consciousness, it must be contingent on the physical sense faculties as well as states of the brain. A fact that was explained earlier when discussing the relationship between the body and the mind. So this is a little bit confusing section where on the one hand, earlier we, we have the presentation that the mind is independent of the body and therefore the mind does not cease when the body ceases. Um, and now we have this presentation of the interdependence of the, uh, or the dependence of mind on physicality. And, they have uh, a different view of the bardo? I'm a little bit confused by this personally. Someone may ask, although consciousness is defined as that which is luminously clear and aware in the sense of being beyond the physical, what exactly is the support or base of consciousness? In general, consciousness is based primarily on the wind, which is located throughout every part of the body, upper and lower, from the crown of the head to the soles of the feet. In particular, among the five sense consciousness, the eye consciousness is located in the physical agent that's decided the eye faculty. Likewise, the ear is located in blah, blah, blah. So they go through the five sense consciousnesses. Um, and the last one in that same paragraph is the mental sense consciousness has both gross and subtle types. The gross is based on the gross life-sustaining wind, prana, and the subtle is based on the subtle life-sustaining wind, which the text of the highest yoga tantra describes as being located in the heart area. In the case of a human being, the heart area, the location of the life-sustaining wind that is the basis of the very subtle mental consciousness is situated between the breasts, close to and directly in front of the spine, is between the upper and lower parts of the knot formed by the middle left and right channels, is located the indestructible dot, which is radiant, drop, sorry, which is radiant. The gross life-sustaining wind in its basic state leaves and enters the nostrils and stays around the heart channel, but it does not remain in the central channel or duty of the knot at the heart channel. This, so this is all the very tantric uh, view of the nature of the mind and its relationship to the body in its subtlest form. The special abode of the five-branched wind, the life-sustaining branch being the most important is the heart area, which is the principal place of their rising and subsiding. In the lotus of the heart channel, uh, the ways in which the five sense consciousnesses function with regard to the five objects should be understood in accordance with how they're explained in Arya Deva's famous text on Vajrayana called Lamp of the Compendium of Practice, etc. That was a sort of interesting but uh, rather confusing section, which hopefully we'll clarify later on. Okay, so we have a little summarizing section now. Uh, the ways of categorizing conscious cognition. 
which is a helpful introductory sort of review of these different aspects that then the remainder of the text will go through. To understand the presentation of mind, so on the bottom of 47, early Buddhist texts offer many ways of categorizing cognition. These are included with the sevenfold typology, the threefold division, and various twofold divisions, all of cognition. First, the sevenfold typology of cognition consists of one, direct perception, two, inference, three, subsequent cognition. Um, so, uh, these are all different sort of gradations of um, cognition that are arranged in sort of a hierarchy of what the uh, the other gentleman, John Dunn, would have called epistemic reliability. So the most epistemically reliable cognition is direct perception. And then comes inference, and which is slightly less authoritative, but still quite authoritative, and then slightly less than that is subsequent cognition. And subsequent cognition is the second moment of, uh, uh, it's the second moment of a consciousness um, that experiences the same object as the first cognition. And um, I'm defining it not entirely correctly, we'll come to a correct definition of it, but I'm just sort of giving a general meaning of it. It's the next moment of uh, cognition in a stream of uh, similar cognitive moments. So you see an object and that first moment is definitive, uh, direct, non-conceptual -cog perception. And then the second moment might be also direct, non-conceptual, but it doesn't have this, in this system, it doesn't have the same sort of level of authority as the first moment of perception of, a, of an object. And it's a subtle point that is, uh, they'll probably elaborate, but it's not that universally important at least. One question on that perhaps, it's when you were talking earlier about the fact that it takes many um, moments or whatever it is before something actually impinges on the mental consciousness. Are those these subsequent cog uh, cognitions or is that something different? It's a good question. I'm not sure how this system classifies them. The idea of uh, multiple um, mind moments of the same object that finally build up to an intensity that sort of registers to consciousness is the way that it's described in the Theravada and Abhidharma system. And the uh, Sautrantika system that we that things are based on here doesn't really have that description. Um, so but, we're kind of mixing different levels here. Yeah. Okay. But but here I think they're talking when they're talking about subsequent cognition. I think they're they're really referring to subsequent mental cognition, where the first moment of a mental cognition of a sense cognition <laughs> is of lesser uh, sort of authoritativeness. You know. So there's visual consciousness, and then the first moment of mental consciousness of a visual consciousness is direct, is non-conceptual. And then the second moment of mental consciousness is no longer non-conceptual, it becomes conceptual. 
Yeah, there's something Mary about Beth. it being new. I think remember we when in earlier class. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Mary Beth. Is that when Rinpoche talks about first thought, best thought? I mean, I think that's the title of his book, but isn't that he talks about that, that it's like that first moment that's important? Yeah, when he first presented that, he didn't say best thought. Uh, somebody else came up with that little phrase of it, which which implies that it's like um, the uh, truest like that implies that it's like uh enlightened thought but um he does describe first thought as being the sort of most genuine correct thought that before it gets sort of yeah it's a similar thing it's i i thought it's sort of it's not necessarily the chronological first thought though it's more like the first thought that's coming out of a clear mind right I mean, that's I, you, you should read it it's in uh, mindfulness and action in the in the, the chapters i think called mind something about mind he presents for the first time this notion of uh, first thought and then we have correct assumption you know so these are de descending levels of authoritative epistemic reliability indeterminate perception you know sort of like um uh, not really uh clear perception doubt and then distorted cognition finally it's the sort of lowest level of cognitive activities where we 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 experience something in a distorted way in uh in both a perceptual and a sort of mental way the way that these cognitions engage their objects will be explained. Second, the threefold division is conceptual consciousness, which has a universal as its observed object. So universal is a generic idea, is a general idea, is a generally characterized phenomena, is a concept, a universal. So these are all synonyms, universal, generic idea, concept, generally characterized phenomena are all synonymous terms and a conceptual consciousness always has that phenomena as it's conceived uh, as it's observed sorry object conceptual consciousness has a concept as its object secondly unmistaken non-conceptual consciousness which has a unique particular as its observed object, which is like direct sense perception. And then mistaken non-conceptual consciousness, which has a clear appearance of a non-existent as its observed object. And then uh, traditionally they say that floaters are an example of this because floaters you have, it's in a sense experience, but it's of things that aren't there. Subsequently, we know that they actually are things that are floating around in your virtuous, vitreous humor, whatever it's called, the fluid inside your eyeball. But it's like, so a better example is seeing uh, white objects as yellow if you have jaundice, which nobody has these days, so it's not or, a great example. Or maybe example, a mirage. Thank you. There you go. You see the shimmering uh, of like thinking that you're, you see a pool of water in the desert when it's just the heat producing that experience so that's a it's a sense cognition because you're seeing 
these waves in the air, but it's complete, and so therefore it's non-conceptual, but it's mistaken. Um, examples of these are, in the first case, a conceptual consciousness perceiving a pot. In the second case, a direct perception perceiving a form. In the third, a distorted non-conceptual con consciousness to which a snow mountain appear yellows, appears yellow. Rather, The threefold division is made from the point of view of the observed object and represents principally the Sautrantika viewpoint. Third, the various twofold divisions are sense consciousnesses versus mental. Conceptual versus non-conceptual consciousness, valid versus non-valid uh, consciousnesses, and uh, there's usually seven of these, and they're a very helpful um, list. Uh, here we have six. So the first is sense versus mental consciousness, conceptual versus non-conceptual, valid nurses versus non-valid and many of them are similar and when we have time we'll go through them uh, after we've gone through these actually we'll come back to them and go through them in terms of relationships like what's the relationship between sense consciousness and non-conceptual are those identical overlapping or exclusive or inclusive and so forth we have valid versus non-valid, mistaken versus unmistaken, and those that engage first uh, through exclusion versus those that engage through affirmation. So positive versus negative perceivers. And lastly, in this list, um, mind and mental factors. These six divisions are listed in the text presenting such categories. <laughs> These, this list is presented in texts that present them. <laughs> um, let's see, the twofold division of sense consciousness versus mental is made from the perspective of whether the relevant cognition needs to be based on a physical faculty as its dominant condition. The dominant condition is what is the sense base? Uh, conceptual consciousness versus non-conceptual is made from the perspective of, of whether a linguistic, linguistic referent appears in that cognition. A linguistic referent is another way of uh, indicating a concept, a universal, a generic image. So it's another synonymous term. The twofold division of valid and versus non-valid is made from the perspective of whether a cognition is newly realizing or is deceptive or non-deceptive. And the significance here is newly realizing. The twofold division of mistaken cognition versus non-unmistaken is made from the perspective whether the object of a cognition exists as it is perceived. And then uh, engagement versus inclusion, uh, sorry, engagement via exclusion versus engagement via affirmation is made from the perspective of whether cognition engages its object by parsing its object into components or not. So a direct sense perception uh, sees the entire object, the, the complete entity, whereas a conceptual cognition breaks things down into its uh, different aspects, its different characteristics. 
Um, finally, the twofold division of mind and mental pages is made from the perspective of whether a given cognition is primary or secondary, and whether it apprehends the entity itself or the specific attributes, which is the definition, definitional distinction between mind and mental factors. Mind or primary mind, and there are six of them, the five senses and the mental sense faculty, engages its object, apprehends the entity itself of an object. And then mental factors apprehend the specific attributes of the object. So that's a quick little overview of these different categorizations of cognition that uh, have uh, subtle differences between them, even though a lot of them seem overlapping. And that will be ideally fleshed out over time through the laborious quality of this material. <laughs> Uh, final comments, questions, suggestions, announcements, predictions. I noticed in that first section, because I've been listening to some cognitive science stuff, he really seems to be into cognitive science. Yeah, he definitely is. He's one of the guys that's teamed up with Richie Davidson and other cognitive scientists in researching the, the mind from a Buddhist point of view, trying to fuse, come to a sort of fusion of the two. And his uh, co-author on lots of very technical articles on the subject. Thank you very much. Let's dedicate and uh, call it a day. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the, um, <laughs> by the confidence of the golden sun. Son of the great east, may the lotus garden of the victim's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be this misspelled, be misspelled. <laughs> May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Good night. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you. Good night. Take care. Good night.